Today, we are honored to welcome Michael Kugelman, a distinguished expert on Afghanistan, India, and Pakistan, and their intricate relations with the United States. The Wilson Center is a Washington, D.C. think tank. Michael brings a wealth of knowledge to our discussion. With 11 books under his belt, he has contributed to renowned publications such as the New York Times, Foreign Policy, and Foreign Affairs. Michael leads the South Asian portfolio at the Wilson Center and is a prominent columnist for Foreign Policy magazine. His expertise spans shifting geopolitics in South Asia, U.S.-India Technology Corporation, the future of U.S.-Pakistan relations, and the strategic insights from the U.S.-led war in Afghanistan. Michael Kugelman is a sought-after commentator, having been featured in major media outlets like the New York Times, BBC, and NPR. Join us for an insightful conversation as we tap into Michael's wealth of expertise and explore critical issues in the South Asian region, specifically Kerala. One of the key questions we wanted to find out is what constitutes Hindu nationalist ideology and how does it intersect with political Islam? Additionally, how does it align with the ideologies prevalent in Israel? So attached to the Hindu nationalism ideology is this position toward Muslims and particularly political Islam, this idea that um, any type of um, political Islam is uh, is troubling, perhaps dangerous, and there's a desire to take a very hard line against um, any type of perceived threat posed by um, political uh, Islam. And so this aligns Modi and his supporters with Israel in a big way because this is the position that Israel takes. It feels a you know a need to target Hamas um, with as much force and muscle as um, as as possible. Now, if you go to Kerala and you look at the leadership there, I mean that's this is of course a state that is not controlled um, by the um, uh, by the by the BJP government by Modi. It's uh, I would describe reflective of a very different type of political view, a different type of ideological view, which I would describe as much less communal than um, than the BJP, uh, much less focused on Hindu nationalism, much more focused on interfaith. Um, you know, diversity, multi-faith cooperation, all of that. And so in that regard, it's perfectly logical to be more sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinian people, including the concerns and the anger of the Palestinians toward policies of, um, of Israel. Um, so I think that that sort of gets at the, the the differences here. I don't want to overgeneralize too much. There always could be exceptions within the the different cases. But I think that one has to distinguish between Hindu nationalism and the positions it takes toward uh, Islam, political Islam, perceived threats emanating from political Islam or from Islamist terror groups, for that matter, versus you know these non-BJP uh, parties, governments, which, you know, just take a very different approach, uh, much less attached to this idea of Hindu nationalism. I was curious to find out how does the BJP perform in state politics and what role do southern states like Kerala play in BJP's political landscape? Yeah, I think that one of the interesting questions about the politics in India more broadly is, the degree of success that the BJP has had um, in state politics. And, you know, we saw just a few weeks ago that it, uh, it triumphed in three different state elections. 
two of two of the states of which it did not have uh, power before that. Um, but the BJP has struggled to do well, quite frankly, in state politics in, in southern India, including uh, Kerala. And you know, some months ago, uh, the Congress, which of course is the main opposition party in India, won the election in Karnataka, in the same region as Kerala. And that was a pretty big deal. So I think that um, if you look at a map of India, and if you look at the different, uh, you know, the different states and who controls the state governments in these places, it's looking more and more like the South has become one of the sole remaining bastions for non-BJP politics, non-BJP governments. And the BJP knows that. And they probably want to do whatever they could to influence things in a way that their party could become more influential and powerful in the South, even though that's a tough that that's a tall order given how entrenched um uh non-bjp parties are and which and I, I think it's not a coincidence that you know the southern states generally speaking have a, a reputation for being a bit more uh, open to to pluralism tolerance you don't have as much discrimination as you see in in the hindu belt so to speak where the bjp is so strong in the north and the center and so forth according to the new york times in an alleged new york hit job with international implications, prosecutors claim a plot was orchestrated to assassinate a Sikh separatist. The intended target, Gruptawan Singh Panum, is the General Counsel for Sikhs for Justice, an organization advocating for Punjabi's independence. Indian national Nikhil Gupta is accused of hiring a hitman on behalf of an official with the Indian government to carry out the assassination. Banun is an American citizen and a vocal proponent of Punjab's secession from India. The person he hired was someone who was working for the government. The alleged plot to assassinate a Sikh separatist in New York with accusations pointing to an involvement from an official with the Indian government could potentially strain Indian-U.S. relations. If substantiated, such claims could lead to diplomatic tensions raising questions about the nature of international relations and collaborations between the two nations. It may prompt discussions and investigations to determine the veracity of these allegations and address any potential impact on the broader relationship between India and the United States. We inquired with Michael about the potential repercussions of this alleged plot on Indian-U.S. political relations and whether it could lead to strains between the two countries. Well, I mean, I'd argue that it's in a pretty good place, uh, despite what happened with these allegations against India about their uh, role in, a, in an attempted assassination of a Sikh separatist. Um, and you know, I think you can get an indication of the strength of the relationship by what has happened since that allegation has gone public, right? We now know that the Biden administration had known since July, which was a number of months before the indictment was unsealed, the Biden administration had known since July that um, that these allegations existed. It knew about this plot. And yet over that period, if you look at what happened between July and up to when the indictment was unsealed uh, earlier this month, there were many high-level engagements that the Biden administration had with India, including a Biden-Modi meeting in New Delhi in September during the G20 summit there. None of these engagements were canceled. There was a two plus two meeting, which is when you have the uh, the top defense official and the top diplomat of each country meet up. 
that happened in Delhi some weeks back, wasn't scaled back. So that that I think is sort of an indication that um, clearly what happened wasn't so serious that it caused it prompted the U.S. to suspend engagements or anything like that. Also, you know, the, the Biden administration never went public about this indictment. It waited until the indictment was unsealed. There was actually a leak. This is actually interesting. There, there was a leak to the Financial Times, which came out with with this news before the indictment was unsealed. But still, you did not have U.S. officials coming out publicly accusing India being behind this, in contrast to what we saw with the Canadian government, where Prime Minister Trudeau stood before the floors of Parliament accusing India. And that, I think, is because the Canada-India relationship is not nearly as strong as the U.S.-India relationship uh, is. So it's it's in a good place. Um, you know, several reasons for that. One is that you've seen what I would describe as exponential growth in ties since the early 90s, and especially since the early 2000s. Um, and that has entailed building a lot of trust and goodwill, um, and it's entailed the establishment of a number of a number of regular recurring dialogues, many of them on high levels. And so that entails two sides to be engaging frequently and also to address concerns and tensions and work through them. Um, there's bipartisan, multipartisan support for partnership in both capitals. That's also helped. Um, so that's one reason why the relationship is in, in such a good place. Second reason is really strategic factors. I mean, we, we all know this, that uh, the U.S. views India as a critical partner to enlist in efforts to counter China. It needs a partner in South Asia, and India is really the the only the one that fits the bill the most, right, given its location, given its military uh, strength, its size and, and cloud of its economy, as well as its own competition with, with China. And I think even though there's acknowledgement here in Washington that there are things that India will not be willing to do to partner with with uh, the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis China because it's not in the alliance system, it's still seen as a um, as a as a critical partner, particularly as it starts to show that it can serve as a net security provider. It's actually been, for instance, providing arms to certain countries in the Indo-Pacific, including. Um, missiles that it's going to be shipping to the Philippines, which is enmeshed in a uh, in a spat with China in the South China Sea. Uh, uh, the U.S. also views India as a country that could push back against China in means that go beyond military means, such as by it, such as its capacity as a tech player. The idea there is that it could draw it could draw um, uh, attention from major tech companies closer to India, away from China, particularly when it comes to relocating um, production away from China into India. A number of big tech companies have already looked to do that, including Foxconn, which is one of the big uh, semiconductor manufacturers. Um, final reason I'll cite here, and this is sort of the, the delicate one, but I think it's important to cite, particularly in the context of these recent allegations against India, you know, the U.S. does not choose its strategic partners based on considerations about uh, uh, morals, values, how free and democratic countries are. You know, the U.S. has partnered with many uh, dictatorial regimes over the years, right? From the, the right-wing uh, dictatorships in Latin America and Africa and Asia during the Cold War to countries more recently like Saudi Arabia and Israel, for that matter, which are not known for their strong human rights records. So all that, all things said, I think the relationship's in a good place. But, you know, I, I will acknowledge that I think that on, on a personal level, for many U.S. officials that have been working with India for so long, you know, it's a gut, it, it's a, it's a, um, it's a gut punch, so to speak, to know that one of your closest strategic partners has been willing to, if the, if the allegations are true, been willing to carry out transnational repression on U.S. soil, right? I mean, U.S., America's best friends don't do things like that. 
mean, America carries out acts of transnational repression on the soil of others, I would argue, but it rarely does that in countries that are closely uh, closely partnered with with the U.S. You know, people have cited, for example, the uh, the operation that took out Qasem Soleimani. This has happened during the Trump years. That happened in Iran. Iran is not a friend of the U.S. So, anyway, so so that bottom line is the relationship. It's a bit scarred by these allegations, but um, I think that it'll uh, it'll be able to withstand this shock for sure. Is the Modi government's alliance with Israel primarily driven by its pro-Hindu stance and perceived opposition to Muslims? Or is it more of a strategic move aimed at improving political relations with the United States and Israel? Yeah, I think it's it's all of the above. And I, as I had mentioned before, you know, there are many reasons why we've seen India move closer to Israel. One is is Modi's admiration for Israel and how they handle uh, threats posed by terrorism, particularly Islamist terrorism. So I think there's some natural uh, convergences between Hindu nationalism and uh, the way in which Israel conducts its business, so to speak, uh, when it comes to threats posed by uh, by te- by terrorists. But yeah, there, there is the strategic element as well, which which I had descri- described before. That India is trying to scale up its relations in the Middle East more broadly, and is, if it wants to do that, it has to get closer to Israel, given how much of a key and powerful player Israel is in the um, uh, in the in the broader Middle East. One thing that I will say here, which I should have mentioned earlier, you know, we're talking about how we've seen a striking strengthening of relations between India and Israel, but this doesn't mean that India is pushing itself away from the Palestinians. So, you know, India's position toward the Palestinians remains in place, even in light of what's happened with this war in Gaza and so on. India continues to support a two-state solution, and India also is um, very sympathetic to Uh, and supportive of the Palestinian uh, plight. Uh, It's always looking to provide aid. It's provided uh, significant levels of humanitarian aid to the Palestinians during this crisis. So it actually puts, it puts India sort of in a similar camp to the U.S. when it comes to, um, you know, views of the Israel-Palestinian situation. And, you know, we know that in this current conflict in Gaza, you know, a lot of people have been talking about the fact that India has, you know, very unusually been openly siding with with Israel. You know, Modi in several tweets had said that we express solidarity for Israel and its fight against terrorism. You know, this is unusual because typically India sought to 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 balance its relations with the Israelis and the Palestinians. The re the only reason why Modi has taken that position he has is because of how this conflict began. It began with a Hamas terrorist attack. And so naturally India with the views that it has about Islamist terrorism it's going to focus on that again, much like the United States. And in that regard, India sees the Israeli response, uh, you know, the assaults, the war that it's waging on Gaza. It sees that as a counterterrorism operation, even though so many other countries would think that's not true at all. But despite that, you know, Israel, pardon me, India continues to take the same position vis-a-vis the Palestinians, and I'm quite sure that India's officials and diplomats have spoken with their partners in the Arab world, the Saudis and the the Jordanians, the Egyptians, the Emiratis, the Qataris, so many of them to, to make this point that, look, we are not abandoning the Palestinians. We're taking the position that we have because of Hamas terrorism. You know, don't see our position as something that's abandoning the Palestinian cause. I think that's an important uh, qualifier to put out there, too. Examining the geopolitical landscape of India requires a closer look at the Modi government which has effectively maintained leadership and power since May of 2014. 
With the possibility of Modi securing a third term, questions arise about the future trajectory of India under its continued leadership. How long will the Modi government endure and what implications might this have for the nation's future? Well, you know, it's interesting. There are quite a few elections in South Asia next year, the region where India is based, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, Sri Lanka later in the year, Bhutan, and India has an election in, in the spring. And I'd say that, uh, you know, there's sort of a lot of like uncertainty and volatility about the election dynamics playing out in those countries. I'd say that there's very little that's unknown at all about India's election. Um, barring an unforeseen event, Modi will be back for a third term, a third straight term, uh, which has never happened in India, I believe. He is very popular. His party is very popular. Uh, the opposition, and I'm talking about national levels here, not state levels. Um, the main opposition, the Congress has really struggled. It's, it, as I said before, suffered some, some pretty uh, wrenching losses in state election races in recent weeks. Um, it doesn't really have a charismatic leader that can uh, sort of match up well with, uh, with Modi. Um, and, uh, you know, Hindu nationalism has gotten a lot of traction in India. I mean, certainly the Indian Muslim community in many cases doesn't care for it. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the, the voting majority, I would argue, has uh, really identified with Hindu nationalism in a, in a big way. So I, I think it will, it will be very surprising if Modi loses. So he'll likely be back. And then I think the question is, what will he do next? Um, you know, he's already shown his willingness to act in ways that his predecessors have not been willing to act, particularly if you look at his decision to uh, repeal uh, the uh, Article 370, which is a constitutional clause in India that had given India-administered Kashmir this special autonomous status. But uh, he, um, he, he removed that clause, and um, that means that Jammu and Kashmir is now a, a union territory of India, which has been something that has been completely rejected by Pakistan as Kashmir, all of Kashmir is claimed by both countries and Pakistan claims India minister Kashmir is a controversial move to take. Many had not taken it in the past. Modi was willing to, um, to do it. So he's, he's in a good place. Um, his party really does revolve around him. Um, but I would argue that there are several other senior BJP leaders that I think could well be ready to step up in five years to succeed Modi. Modi will definitely, if he wins, he'll definitely be around for another five years. But I imagine after that, he may be ready to step away. We'll see. But you know, there's a there's a guy named Yogi Adityanath, who is currently the chief minister, which is essentially like a governor in the US context, of Uttar Pradesh, which is the most populous state in India. It's biggest electoral prize is sort of like California or Texas here. Um, and uh, he has seen, he's viewed very highly within the BJP um, because of, among other things, the fact that he has won re-election. He, he was elected, then he was re-elected, which has never happened there. It's sort of seen as a sign of how powerful and, 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 and successful he is politically. He is, however, uh, an extremist, quite frankly. Um, you know, he is a, an, a, a fervent uh, adherent of Hindu nationalism, but uh, with a lot of muscle. He said a lot of nasty things about Muslims. Um, uh, and unfortunately, we've really seen discrimination and just the climate toward Muslims has really, um, unfortunately, gotten a lot uh, worse in Uttar Pradesh since he's been in power. So there's some in India that think that he's too extreme to succeed Modi. But, you know, there's him, there's others like Amit Shah, 
And there's some other BJP leaders that I think would be in a position to step up, suggesting that we could see BJP governments in New Delhi um, for quite some time to come, not just over the next five years, but uh, uh, perhaps beyond that uh, as well. And, and of course, you know, things could change. I mean, if the Congress party manages to figure out a way to move forward, it did form an alliance with uh, several, a large number of other opposition parties. And that's significant because India's opposition is known for being very fractious and divided. So there is this alliance between Congress and many other parties, though I would argue that Congress uh, ended up shooting itself in the foot by refusing to work with some of those opposition alliance members in its state election campaigns in the states that it lost uh, in some of the elections in recent weeks. So I'd argue that the alliance is not necessarily as allied as, as it had been um, uh, some some months back. So, yeah, to me, the trend line suggests that the BJP is in a good place. It's in the catbird seat, so to speak. And uh, I think that it's going to be um, holding power for quite some time to come. One of the things that I was really curious about was the Khalistan movement. To gain insight into the Khalistan movement, it's essential to start with its definition. Khalistan is the envisioned state by certain Sikhs aspiring to incorporate the Indian state of Punjab and other Punjab-speaking regions in northern India with the goal of establishing a surveying Sikh nation. The ethno-religious liberation movement gained prominence in India during the 1970s and early 80s, but later subsided. In recent years, there has been a renewed interest and momentum in the Khalistan movement, particularly within the Sikh diaspora. Now, if we go back in time, a historical turning point occurred in 1984 when Indra Gandhi, then Prime Minister of India, was assassinated by two Sikh bodyguards. This event followed her controversial decision to permit the storming of the holiest Sikh temple intended to root out Sikh separatists advocating for an independent homeland called Khalistan. The storming of the temple provoked widespread anger among Sikhs globally. So I wanted to address this question to Michael. What does he think about Khalistan, the movement? Is it something that's going to die out or is it a gaining momentum? Yeah, no, it's a very important question. I would argue that many, many outside India, many in the U.S. have never heard of the Khalistan movement. So I'm glad that you bring it up. And, you know, just as, a, as, a, as an aside, before I answer that question, you know, we briefly discussed before the very serious allegations that uh, U.S. officials have leveled on India for an attempted assassination of a, um, a U.S. citizen in New York. And that that individual is a supporter of the Khalistan movement. He's a Sikh separatist. So what is the Khalistan movement? Where is it going? So yeah, basically, the idea here is um, uh Khalistan is a name given to a hypothetical potential separate state that would be carved out of the state of Punjab in India that would essentially be a, a, a homeland for, for Sikhs. Um, for, for, for Sikhs. And again, it would be in, in the current state of Punjab. There is a big history here. Um, if you go back to the 70s and especially the 80s into the early 90s, you had a full-fledged insurgency led by uh, Khalistanis that were fighting for this, this separate state. Um, and uh, it led to, to significant levels of violence, particularly in the 80s. And uh, this violence did 
um, manifest itself outside India as well. I mean, very famously, or should I say very infamously, um, Khalistani terrorists blew up a, uh, an, Air, an Air India flight, which had taken off from Canada back in 1984, um, I believe. So that, that was when, at least at that point, the world sort of found out what the Khalistan movement is. And there were a number of other um, things that happened. You had Sikh, um, you had Khalistan uh, extremists that took over a big uh, temple in India. And you then had the Indian military storm it, caused all kinds of uh, uh, human, uh, it led to a lot of deaths. Then in retaliation, um, Indira Gandhi, who at the time was the prime minister, she had several bodyguards who were Sikhs. They assassinated her. And that then prompted uh, horrific levels of religious violence involving Sikhs, Hindus that played out in India for quite some time. And at that point, that was the most deadly violence that India had seen since partition. So this was something really serious. And, you know, it's interesting. I remember looking through some uh, declassified CIA um, uh, missives documents that were declassified in recent years. And there was one that was written, I believe in the mid to late 80s about the Khalistan movement. And it said that um, this this issue, Khalistan Sikh, uh, Sikh extremism is a long-term terrorism threat that we, meaning the US, have to be uh, mindful of. But that was that, but, but that was then. India really cracked down hard uh, on the movement and it's really been not much at all um, for the last few decades since the early 90s. Um, you do still have some Sikhs in Punjab and elsewhere in India as well, I'm sure, who support the idea of a separate state, but you don't have an active violent movement. You don't have terrorism. You don't have violence being uh, waged by Sikh separatists, by, by Khalistan activists. You don't have it anymore. But what worries India, what worries New Delhi is that there has been increased activism in recent years carried out by members of the Sikh communities in the U.S., in Canada, in the U.K., in Australia, in New Zealand. And this is very worrisome to New Delhi because they believe or they claim to believe that this is the indications of a comeback of the Khalistan movement, only it's being waged from overseas. Now, you know, this when I talk about activism, I'm not talking about violence. I'm not talking about terrorism. I'm talking about, you know, some groups of Khalistan supporters that come out with their Khalistan flags and they protest uh, sometimes outside of Indian diplomatic facilities. For the most part, it's not violent. There have been a few exceptions, including this year, when the Indian consulate in San Francisco was twice um, besieged by Khalistan supporters. In one case, they, they tried to break their way into it. In another case, they uh, tried to light it on fire. They weren't successful. U.S. officials condemned what happened. That's sort of an exception more than the norm, uh, more than the rule. So for all these reasons, many argue that India is, is wildly overstating the threat posed by Khalistan, by, the, by, by Khalistan today. But I think that for New Delhi and for many in India, it's a sensitive issue because it used to be such a serious threat. So naturally, there's a view that they wouldn't want to be complacent about the idea of a potential um, resurgence um, of this threat uh, today. As previously mentioned, Michael serves as the director of Wilson Center's South Asia Institute. Now let's delve into the nature of the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. It is recognized as a think tank in the capital, and Michael can provide insights into the center's role in serving both the general public and those engaged in political spheres. He can elaborate on the specific contributions and activities of the Wilson Center, shedding light on its impact on various audiences. 
Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, you know, the Wilson Center is um, nonpartisan in, in an institutional sense in that we don't take positions. You know, we sponsor research, we host uh, discussions, we provide platforms for people with different perspectives to do research, to give briefings and all. But, you know, institutionally, we don't take positions. But individual experts, uh, specialists like myself, you know, we we represent our own views. We don't represent uh, the institution. So obviously, you know, everything I've told you today, it's my view. It's not the Wilson Center's perspective. But in terms of what we do, it really depends on on, on the context, right? Um, you know, we, you know, on the one hand, um, we'll um, provide uh, or host conferences, seminars, activities for the public, right? Where we bring together people, we bring together experts to talk about, for example, U.S.-India relations. And since the Wilson Center is chartered by Congress as the official memorial to Woodrow Wilson, one of our mandates is to serve as an expert resource to the general public. And that's what that that's the purpose of those open public seminars. You know, that's that's what we do. But, you know, we also have uh, more targeted audiences, which always always include the D.C. policy world, the administration of the day, Capitol Hill. Um, and so in that sense, you know, we also will host um, private sessions, roundtables where we, you know, we we sort of, uh, you know, we, we keep the. Um, the focus to a more limited set uh, of individuals, key stakeholders in, in the policy world. And, you know, we provide provide space for those types of briefings. You know, so we we do that as well. But I, I'll say this, that we, one of our main <clears throat> strengths, I think, has been our fellows and scholars. You know, we're called the Wilson Center, but our formal name is the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. We have a flagship fellows program where we have people from academia, from journalism, from the policy worlds, from business, NGOs, they come spend nine months in residence working on a research project. And those fellows contribute in big ways to the work that the permanent staff like myself are doing. They help supplement it. So that's been, that's a big part of the, what the Wilson Center does uh, as well. And, uh, you know, the, the, the products that we come out with, whether you're talking about um, policy briefs, books, short articles, oral briefings, you know, depending on the context, you know, we, we get that out there as, as much as we can. And in many cases, I said before to the public and other cases to key stakeholders within U.S. governments, within the business uh, industry, journalists, and so on. Because at the end of the day, we want to be seen as expert resources to the public, but also to, um, to key stakeholders across the public and, and private sectors as well. If you have any stories that you would like to share and be heard, please reach out to us at info at vinujosephfilms.com. That's I-N-F-O at V-I-N-U-J-O-S-E-P-H-F-I-L-M-S dot com.